Warning, MF Uncensored contains adult language and discussion. Listener discretion is advised. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. We're not that being dilly. Don't go around willy-nilly. Seems to us kind of silly I'm one of your hosts, Paul, and I'm doing the intro for you guys today. Today's episode was arguably one of the most interesting ones that I've had thus far. So we've interviewed authors and businessmen and businesswomen and actors and all sorts of people and some really interesting people. Now, this guy, it goes by the name of Steve Stolier, and Steve was phenomenal. Steve has been a mainstay in Hollywood for years and years. His uh, biggest accomplishment or biggest... uh, project that he's been working on is a book called Raised Eyebrows, and it's a story about him living and working with Groucho Marx during the last years of his life, and for our younger kids who maybe don't know who Groucho Marx is, look him up. He is um, a centerpiece of comedy and movies and just such an incredible uh, gifted actor who brought a lot of joy to people's lives, myself included, so make sure you guys check out his website, stevestoliere.com. That's uh, S-T-O-L-I-A-R, and his book, Raised Eyebrows. And speaking of books, I cannot start an episode without reminding everyone that today's episode is brought to you by Neil Getzlow and his book, Unmasked, Conquering Sexual Sin and Walking in Victory. Guys, you've heard us more than once talk about how great Neil is and how powerful his story is. It's something we're very passionate here about uh, at MF Uncensored. We just did an interview with Neil and his wife, Amy, and... Man, it it blew myself and producer Melanie away. We had such an incredible time speaking to them. That interview is now live. You can go to misfitfaction.podbean.com or our website, The Misfit Faction, to learn about it. And uh, also, I got to say that this episode is brought to you by Raise Energy Drinks. Guys, if you've listened to the Multiverse Fancast or Cinematic Adventures for any amount of time, I know. Those promos... They're there all the time. But in all honesty, Ray's Energy has been such a big supporter of our show. We have so much fun not only working with them, but also we get the Insider Pack from them every year, every month. Excuse me. Uh, I buy cases of Ray's Energy. I'm a big fan of it. I I find that it's very helpful, especially in my line of work. And if you guys know what I do, you know what I do. And sometimes I'm a little tired while doing it. And Ray's Energy has always been uh, my go-to in the afternoons, especially literally just cracked one open to do this intro at five o'clock in the afternoon but uh if you guys are looking for a little bit of a taste a little raise energy uh, boost you can go to uh, repsports.com that's r-e-p-p sports and if you enter the code misfit89 at checkout you get 20 percent off as a thank you to from us for you guys listening and of course I forgot to mention, and I'll never forget to mention this again, we have been accepted into Podbean's affiliate program. Now, what does that mean? If you guys are looking to start your own podcast, right? You've been listening to us for so many years, whether it's on this show, Multiverse Fancast, Cinematic Adventures, whatever it is, and you're thinking that you would like to start your own podcast and try it out for yourself, you can actually go to podbean.com slash misfitfaction. That's podbean.com slash misfitfaction and try one of their plans for, and you get a free month on us. So that is a thank you to all of you guys who've been listening to us. We want to share the gift of podcasting. And if you want to create your own podcast, reach out to us. We would love to work with you and love to get you involved. The Misfit Faction is always looking for new shows, new content, new everything. And speaking of content, if you are a business owner or somebody that has a product that you'd like advertised on podcasting, if you guys go to sponsorship.podbean.com slash misfitfaction, very original, I know, you'll actually get $100 of free advertising again on us. That is our gift to you guys for being such loyal, incredible listeners. Thank you guys for tuning in. And after the break, we are going to come back with Steve Stolier. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of MF Uncensored, brought to you by the Misfit Faction. It is Paul here in the studio today, and uh, if you're listening to us on the go, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Now, I am super excited. We have a guest in the studio today, or in the Zoom in the studio, because that's how podcasts are done nowadays. We have Mr. Steve Stolier of... uh, yeah, well, all sorts of things. If you basically have watched a movie or a TV show in the last uh, couple of years, you might know this guy, especially by voice. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But also, if you're a fan of a, of a little comedian slash actor named Groucho Marx, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. For all the ki- oh yeah, for all the kids listening nowadays, he's got some great stories and uh, some stories about his book, Raised Eyebrows, that we're going to talk to. So Steve, thank you for joining us tonight. It is my pleasure. Nice to be here via Zoom. Via Zoom, because nowadays that's that's what everybody's doing. It's it's been such a learning experience for us because we're very used to having people in our studio talking to yeah. us, and so Zoom's it's been. Preferable. It is it is definitely preferable. So Where are you located? We're in New York, uh, about an hour outside of New York City. Well, I lived in Manhattan for two and a half years, but I'm not there now. So commuting to do your show would be markedly more challenging. It'd be a little bit of an issue. I lived at 19 West 82nd Street between Central Park West and Columbus. Oh, wow. Museum of Natural History. And I was there writing material for Dick Cavett at HBO. Oh, that's so cool. Like, you know, especially a lot of people think when you're getting into acting or writing, New York is one of the places to do it. So I can only imagine just kind of how it inspired Except you. I was leaving LA to come to New York to do it. And I remember the movers were packing up my apartment and they couldn't grasp why anyone would move from LA to New York because their experience was the exact reverse with most people. Yeah, they a lot of, going to the West Coast. Yeah, a lot of people, when they want to get into film or TV, they go to the West Coast. If they want to do theater and things like that, they'll go to New York City. To, to get on Broadway. So yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and an interesting shift. So now one of the things that I really was excited to talk to you about is you're also an author, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have a book, uh, Raised Eyebrows, and I believe I want to get the subtitle completely right. I have it all lined up. My Years Inside Groucho's House, correct? Yes, it is about my years inside Groucho's house, hence the subtitle. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that. Like, you know, obviously it's uh, based on your time working with Groucho Marx. So, yeah. This was, this was when I was in college in the 70s, and I was what I felt was the world's biggest Marx Brothers fan, specifically Groucho. And all I ever wanted was to shake his hand and thank him for the laughs, but I suspected the chances of that were slim to none because he was in his 80s and in frail health and what would be the circumstances under which our paths would cross Mm -hmm. which was and it was very frustrating because i would hear from people who would say oh i saw him walking uh, down beverly the other day yeah there he was with his beret and and i thought why was it you and why wasn't it me it should have been me and my, my college roommate at the time and I went to this pizza place in Beverly Hills called Jacopo's, which is no longer there. And they had something on the menu called the Groucho Special. And I thought, well, you know, you can still go to Cantor's Delicatessen and order 
like uh, the Eddie Cantor sandwich, and he's been dead since the early 60s. So, so when the waitress came by, I said, I see the Groucho on the menu. Does, has he ever eaten here? And she said, oh, yes, he comes in here all the time. As a matter of fact, he was here uh, yesterday, right? And he comes in, he always comes in right after we open and tries to pay with a $100 bill, and he knows we can't make change. And I thought, why was he there before me? It's never going to be me. Just missed but him, eventually yeah. it was me. Oh, that's so crazy. Like, what, what are the um, odds, too? I, yeah, I, I'll try to encapsulate this, but I, when I was at UCLA, I started a committee to put pressure on Universal Studios to re-release Animal Crackers, which was the March Brothers' second film made in 1930 for Paramount. Mm -hmm. And in the, when Paramount sold its old movies to Universal, the rights had reverted back. Basically, it was because of like a clerical error. It was, it should have been renewed, but Paramount didn't renew it. And the rights reverted back to the authors and composers of the original Broadway show. Right. And Universal didn't think there was any reason to spend good money clearing the rights to an old black and white movie. You know, this is before VHS, before DVDs, before Turner classics, before streaming. Now we take it for granted mm -hmm. that, you know, I can mention some movie and you could be reaching into your pocket and going tick, 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 and start watching it. It's like, no, not, not back then. And Universal didn't think there was, well, all of my friends and I were Marx Brothers fans. And this was the great missing link. They only made about a dozen movies. And this was the holy grail in their, you know, short list of, of, feature film mm -hmm. and I ended up getting in touch with Aaron Fleming who was the, a young actress who had become Groucho's manager and was had sort of become in charge of his life making the decisions for him <clears throat> and she brought Groucho to UCLA and a lot of news cameras and there were hundreds of kids standing around and we sat there Groucho and I side by side and I couldn't believe I was sitting next to my hero. <clears throat> I mean, I said, Groucho, I'm very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. And Aaron said, this is Steve Stolier. He's the one who's trying to get Animal Crackers re-released. And he said, well, did you get it? <laughs> and I said, not, not uh, yet, but we're, we're working on it. And he said, well, you better or I'll fire you. And I said, I, I didn't even realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. <laughs> and, and we were off and running. And there I was trying to make sense while my heart was pounding out of my shirt, talking to the, <clears throat> listening to Groucho's answers. You know, one, I remember one reporter said, Mr. Marks, what is the purpose of your appearance here today? And he said, I expect to get lunch. <laughs> he said, no, but I mean, but besides that, he said, I may get dinner. So, you know, the, it, it, the truth was he, he was old and frail, but there was still a lot of Groucho left in him, which was very heartening to realize how much was still there. Because he, you know, he started out with so much that even 
with the ravages of time, mm -hmm. he was still making wordplay and, and genuinely funny and interesting anecdotes about things that happened in the 20s and 30s. So Universal relented and re-released the film, and it set the box office record at the UA Westwood that had been set previously by the French Connection. Okay. Very gratifying to see a line down the wall, down the block of all these kids in T-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes, much to universal surprise. And I was rewarded. I had a couple of summer jobs in 74 fall through, for which I remain eternally grateful, because with my back against the wall, I called Aaron Fleming and I said, is there anything at all that you think I might be... She said, well, actually, we need someone to handle Groucho's fan mail because it's gotten so big lately with the interest in the Marx Brothers and someone who knows their Marx Brothers to organize all of Groucho's memorabilia, which is going to go to the Smithsonian after he's... And I'm thinking, please, 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 please. Oh, God, please, yeah, yeah, please, 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 please. And in, in my mind's eye, sort of like a Tex Avery cartoon, I picture myself zooming off to their doorstep while she's still on the phone explaining the job to me. It felt sort of like that. Like going and through I the mean, wall and leaving like the silhouettes, like a cartoon. Yes, yeah, that's it. It's a wily e. Coyote <laughs> yeah, in the cave. So I, I figured I would probably be working in some office in Beverly Hills and maybe twice a month Groucho would come in to collect papers and sign checks. She said, oh, no, dear. There's a room there that you can use and you can come and go and make your own hours. And I thought, and they're, and they're going to pay me money to go to Groucho's house and work with him. And, and I started out the first week working six days a week and then figured I would rest on Sunday since good enough for God. <laughs> so Sunday morning, I woke up and I thought, why... Why do I want to be here in my parents' house in Tarzana when I could be at Groucho Marx's house? And I showered and dressed and drove because I just I couldn't get enough of it. I had spent years hungering. It was sort of like, you know, being at a bakery and just surrounded by fudge cake and <laughs> cupcakes. and brown. It's like I, I just had to gorge myself on the experience. Mm -hmm. And it was just a remarkable, I, I ended up working there for the last three years of his life, was the longest surviving employee. <clears throat> I found out that Erin Fleming could be very difficult to deal with. She mm. was prone to strong mood swings and could be very verbally and emotionally abusive. But Groucho was kind of infatuated with her and as he got weaker, he grew more dependent on her. Mm -hmm. And she was later diagnosed as a, a paranoid schizophrenic. So you're, you're dealing with a very volatile equation of this aging legend leaning on an unbalanced, ambitious woman whose judgment is questionable. And I'm just this kid dropped into this, you know, Petri dish with giant forceps and, uh, I had never had to deal with strong personalities or, you know, people that ran hot and cold like she did. And I did a lot of growing up in that period. But, you know, as Dorothy said, 
at the end of Oz, but most of it was wonderful mm -hmm. because I was welcome at the lunch table. It wasn't like the help had to eat in the kitchen. So regardless of who was coming over for lunch or even if no one was, I was having lunch with Groucho and Aaron or Groucho and a nurse or just Groucho and me. And I was able to ask him all of these things I'd wondered about for years. I mean, he was, first of all, he was a man from 1890, which mm -hmm. blew my mind. He was someone whose firsthand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which is mind blowing. I said to him once, how far back do you remember? And he said, I guess the Spanish-American War. That was 1898. And when he started out in show business, he started out as a singer. It wasn't comedy. And he actually sang on the same bill as Enrico Caruso at the Metropolitan Opera House at a special benefit performance for the victims of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mm -hmm. So he was this living connection to a massive swath of American history. In addition to the fact that he knew personally W.C. Fields and uh, George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and James Thurber and all of these mythic figures to me. And then of course was Groucho Marx, the guy in the grease paint mustache insulting Margaret Dumont and the duck soup. And so it was just an extraordinary, and the people that I got to meet there under comfortable circumstances, Mae West and Bob Hope and Jack Lemon and <clears throat> Milton Berle and his writers, the people that wrote those classic movies, the whole staff of You Bet Your Life, his quiz show from the 50s, because I helped out on a book about how the show was done. And so that put us in touch with George Fenneman, his announcer and the people that worked on the staff of the show. So it was just a mind blowing experience for a 19 year old kid. And Chico and Harpo had died in the early 60s, mm -hmm. but Zeppo and Gummo were the two brothers who were still left. They lived in Palm Springs. Gummo left the act in to fight World War One, he was the straight man in the act. So he was take his role was taken over by Zeppo, who was only seventeen at the time. And Zeppo stayed in the act, and and through the five Paramount films, Coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. And then he quit because he was never comfortable on camera, and became a very very big agent representing. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and Lana Turner and Lucille Ball and Robert Taylor. And he, he really did well. And he sort of picked up where Chico left off in terms of having an eye for the ladies. His last wife, who had just divorced him, married Frank Sinatra, Barbara. Barbara Marks became Barbara Sinatra. But as it turned out, he and I ended up dating the same girl because I brought her with me one night when he was up from San Francisco, from Palm Springs, and he kind of took a liking to her. And and she, after she and I broke up, I, I sent him a letter with a couple pictures I wanted him to sign. And I said, if you have any advice for the lovelorn, 
Linda and I have broken up and I know you've been around the block a few times. <laughs> and then I get this call at night. See the Zeppo marks. How are you? Fine. I got the pictures. Geez, I was good looking back then. But listen, here's why I'm calling. And if this is at all a problem, I want you to be honest. Do you think Linda would go out with me? And I thought, this is, I don't believe this. I call, I, I write him for help getting through this and he's hitting on her. She was 19, I was 20, he was 74. Oh my God. And I said, well, I know she liked you. Let me check with her. And so I told her and she sort of got a kick out of it too. Not that there would be anything developing from it, but just like how often does a Marx brother ask you? So they went out to... They went out once. He took her to dinner in San Diego and then to watch a high game in Tijuana, which I guess that was his, that was Zeppo Marx's first date, <laughs> was dinner in San Diego and a high game. And then when I saw him afterwards, he said, I want you to know Linda was very nice, but all I, I didn't even kiss her goodnight, Steve. She was very nice, but all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus and she said, Zeppo was very nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, this is really interesting. And so afterward, whenever I would see Zeppo at a party or some social gathering, he would introduce me to someone and say, this is Steve. He's a nice fella. And he and I dated the same girl, but he got further with it than I did. That's still an honor, though. Yes. Yes. I mean, who can say they're... Their ex went out with Zeppo Marx. I mean, and he really was funny. You know, that people judge him by the fact that he didn't have much to do in their movies. But when he joined the act, the, you know, the lion's share of the comedy was Groucho, Harpo, and Chico. Mm -hmm. And the straight man intentionally wasn't supposed to get a lot of laughs. So he doesn't really do much in their movies. Although once he leaves you miss him because of some of the really sappy leading men they got after that. But, you know, people would say, they say that Zeppo's the funniest one off stage. I don't know if that's true, but I did witness his wit and he really had a charisma. He seemed much younger than he was and he really lit up the room when he came in. So, you know, I got to meet three of the five Marx brothers which ain't, that's not a bad scorecard. Not at all. So have I answered your first question? I, I don't even know what the first question was at this point. I just, I got so enamored. Usually I'm, I'm very chatty during these interviews, but I, I just, you, you just caught me. And like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to stop you to think of another question. Well, sorry. Okay. No, that's incredible. Cause, Cause you know what? Well, you know what I like? I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and they talk about like interacting with celebrities, especially their heroes. Like we always hear, don't meet your heroes. But yeah. the, the fact that not only did you get to meet yours and work with yours, but the, he just say, he just seems like he was always a good guy. Fast witted. Like, he was. It was. It was so gratifying to hear Steve from down the hall. It's like, oh, my God, that's Groucho Marx calling me. And, you know, he. It, what meant a lot to me was that he got the fact that I was into the same stuff he was into, mm -hmm. you know, that I wasn't just some pot smoking rock and roll listening to hippie that had no idea who these people were. 
he appreciated the fact that I was into the Algonquin Round Table and Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley. And, and one time he called me into his room and he gave me a $20 bill and he said, go down to Tower Records and get me some records. You know what I like. And the fact that he said, you know what I like meant the world to me because he knew he didn't have to explain it. Mm -hmm. Steve would know what grabbed and I, and I got some stuff and he ended up dancing to, with his nurse to a Fred Astaire album I got. And so yeah, he really, he was a very fair person. He had no tolerance for pretense. Mm -hmm. You know, he liked people to be how they really were and respected them even if they disagreed. I mean, there's a great, I think it's on YouTube. There's a great William F. Buckley firing line with Groucho on. And Groucho was a lifelong Democrat, mm -hmm. lifelong liberal, which is, you know, kind of impressive, again, given the fact that he was from 1890. Is this on camera or just voice? Just voice. Don't oh, worry. good. Yeah, don't worry. just went out. Yeah, no, I, I noticed it. Don't worry. I was going to ask. But I was There's just a, going... light, a light burn burned out for every broken heart on Broadway. Anyway. <laughs> So it's it's now I'm now eclipsing or something. No, it's anyway, totally fine. I'm glad it wasn't the power going. <laughs> now I forgot what I was talking about. Uh, I, him being a lifelong Democrat and oh yeah, so he really you know he had some old fashioned ideas. I think you know I think he 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 had you know like with women, he did have this idea that they were for fun and having children mm -hmm. and being housewives he ended up being divorced three times <laughs> he said he said none of my wives had anything upstairs except another man from time to time oh wow and you know but i would look at some of his peers and they had youngish attractive wives who were also really bright and well read mm -hmm. one of them Arthur Sheikman was one of his oldest friends and one of the writers from Paramount. And he married Gloria Stewart, who most people now know as the old lady in Titanic. Oh, yeah. But she was also the female lead in The Invisible Man with Claude Rains. Oh, and the classic. Old with Karloff. She was in, in Gold Diggers of 35, Busby Berkeley film. And she was really bright and interesting and attractive. And... And Harpo's wife, Susan, was the female lead in Million Dollar Legs with W.C. Fields in 32. She was very pretty, but also, but Groucho didn't seem to want to have a compatriot. He was a brandy and cigars with the guys kind of guy. Mm. <clears throat> so none of his wives were ever his peer. And I think ultimately got bored with the fact that Groucho wanted to listen to Gilbert and Sullivan and talk about politics and and show business instead of party games and you know silly things. No, I love but yeah, he was. I, I've had really good luck meeting my heroes. It, it, it's very rarely been disappointing, mm -hmm. which is it's. I, I know that it can be daunting, and you can. <clears throat> you can walk away feeling like it was better admiring him from afar well for instance the first time that i met zeppo was actually before i met groucho because oh. 
I went to see Groucho's one man show at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion two years before I had the job. And I knew that that was as close as I would ever get to him, the back of the Dorothy Chandler. So afterwards, I was in the parking garage and I spotted Zeppo with some young blonde, the foreshadowing of that. And he couldn't find his car. And I said to my friend, I'll never meet Groucho, but damn it, I'm going to meet a Marx brother because I recognize Zeppo from recent photos. So I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx. I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed you in your movies. And he said, you weren't enjoying me. You were enjoying my brothers. And I thought, gee, I'm sorry I gave you a compliment. I didn't mean to upset you. So that was disappointing, even though I'd been dismissed by Zeppo Marx. <laughs> and then, of course, it became all the, all the more ironic, considering what ended up happening when I went to work for his brother. But yes, there are times when you meet them and it's disappointing, but I've had really good luck with my my idols. That's awesome. So I'm looking through some of your, your writing credits. You, you've done a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. You've also done some voice work. Now I have to ask, you did uh, some writing for a documentary called Shemp Cocktail, A Toast to the Original Stooge. Because I, I, I laughed as soon as I read that because I've always been a Shemp fan. And a lot of people forget about Shemp. They think, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly. Curly, Curly, it's Curly or no one. Well, <laughs> Shemp actually had the most uh, successful independent career. Mm -hmm. He was one of the original, the reason I called it, well, Shemp Cocktail, because I couldn't resist the pun. On oh, Shemp it's too cocktail. good. But the reason I said original Stooge was because people think of him as the substitute that came in after Curly had a stroke and, you know, was near death. But he was actually, the original Stooges were Larry, Moe, and Shemp mm -hmm. on Broadway and vaudeville and very early film or two. And then Shemp left the act and they brought in Curly. And Shemp, you know, he shows up in a lot of classic films. He's in The Bank Dick with W.C. Fields playing the bartender. He's in Africa Screams with Abbott and Costello. And he, there were actually some short films starring Shemp Howard. So he actually, he, he could function without the other guys. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was interesting working on that because I, I was able to interview and spend some time with Shemp's daughter-in-law, the woman who had married Shemp's son. And she was old enough to remember, you know, she, I mean, she vividly for years, they spent time together. And she, she taught me how they did the eye poke because Shemp taught her that you aim at the, at at the, the bone ridge right over the eyes quickly. And that way it doesn't hurt, but you need to be careful. <laughs> Kids listening at home, don't try this. Because... And I, I think said, nowadays they actually do a warning with the Three Stooges, like if it's on oh TV. Or... We started on political correctness and oh. blackface and stereotypes and cultural appropriation. Or when they did the remake of the movie, which the remake of, of the Three Stooges, like the modern movie, it had yeah. the right spirit, but the, you know it, it just wasn't the same. Yeah. What was? Oh, the other thing that Shemp taught her that she told me about was she said, Shemp taught me how to evenly butter an ear of corn. Huh. Said you take a piece of white bread and you butter the bread 
and then you use it like an oven mitt over the corn, evenly rolling it around all the different kernels. And that way, instead of taking a pat of butter and putting it on the corn and watching it slowly drip off onto your plate, you have evenly distributed. So there is Shemp Howard's How to Butter an Ear of Corn Evenly lesson. I might actually make that the the name of the podcast episode. (laughs) How to Butter (laughs) Bread Properly presented by Shemp. Yes. Sounds Um, like a Robert Benchley short. (laughs) How to. How to butter. I love it. That's too good. Now, I'm also looking at some of the other things you've written. And one also jumped out at me. And it's like the most obscure or like for some of the younger listeners. The TV show Sliders, you were a writer on that for a couple of episodes too. I remember that show as a kid. Like what what an interesting show that was. And like I'm looking through your stuff. Tell me a little bit about, you know, writing some TV shows. You, you've also done a lot of voice work and, you know, it's Christmas time. So I have to mention, you know, Frosty Returns. You were a voice actor on that. I so, was. I played several voices. I think I'm the first voice in the show as a radio weatherman saying like it's 22 degrees outside and you know what that means something like that yeah but what was i'll tell you what was cool about that was the other people i was sharing microphones with were john goodman brian doyle murray well see now i can't rattle them off like i used to andrea martin from sctv and the little girl I mean, it's basically the story of a little girl with Frosty, sequel to the original Frosty. And Frosty was John Goodman. And he was he was really down to earth. And I, I really enjoyed his company. But the little girl, I don't really remember what she was like, except that she knew her dialogue. She knew the songs and she didn't give anyone a hard time. Turned out that was Elizabeth Moss. Oh, yeah. She played uh, Holly. Yeah. I, I got, I got, I got a little uh, bit of a vault sometimes that I just pull random fun facts yeah, out of. Like pulling it up on Google or IMDb, but I digress. But yeah, I mean, who would have thought looking, I think she was six or seven, something like that. Mm-hmm. And now she's this leading actress on television. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was in the invisible, uh, uh the invisible man remake recently. So yeah. it's, it's funny. Cause you just mentioned, uh, Handmaid's Tale and oh yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. How did you get into to voice acting, though, from, from doing a lot think, of behind-the-scenes Well, stuff? I've always had a flair for impressions and just sort of a decent voice for announcing and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And a friend of mine worked at Bill Melendez Productions, and so she gave Bill my, what do you, not audition tape, what do you call it? Uh, uh, like your voice, your, oh, your voice. Uh, demo, like, my yeah, demo. demo. There it is, we found it. And he thought it was... Uh, good enough and they brought me in on something and ended up using me numerous times one of the most challenging and gratifying was on one called you're in the super bowl charlie brown because the way animation usually works is you have the script and you record the voices and then they animate to the sound to the voice tracks Mm -hmm. in this case the show was finished but I got a call from my friend at Bill Melendez and she said, we need your help. Sparky, who was Charles Schultz, Sparky wrote all these football games into the show. And there's 
we don't know what's going on. There's no narration. There's no dialogue. It's just a bunch of Woodstock birds playing football, throwing a football and dancing in the end zone and all this. And we need to add something. Will you get a copy and time it and write something and record it? And I accepted the challenge. And, you know, all I had was a VHS player and kept hitting the pause. I didn't have a stopwatch. I would try out something and it's like, oh, it's on the next scene. All right, I need to cut some words out of it. And I ended up writing and I, I just let my imagination go. And so I had, uh, it, it was really heavy on alliterations because they do that so much in, you know, look at that pigskin plummet and that, you know, all that stuff. And I ended up giving the team members all names of presidents, you know, Washington throws it to Jefferson and Lincoln scored. And, and, and they kept using the same clip of the bird doing his dance in the end zone. The touchdown dance, but I yeah. I kept giving it a different name each time. <laughs> He's doing his patented Woodstock waddle. He's doing the, And they felt like it really saved the show. And what was really cool was that's the only Peanuts special where Charles Schultz shared a writing credit. Really? He's, He's, all of them say written by Charles Schultz. Mm -hmm. And this one still says written by Charles Schultz, but it also said additional dialogue by Steve Stolier. So that was really cool. Oh, that's so cool. Like that, what, like, what, like a legacy to have too, with, you know, obviously. And, and, and to be directed by Bill Melendez, who was there from Charlie Brown Christmas and was the voice of Snoopy. And, and this was something I found at Groucho's. The old legendary veteran icons were much more down to earth than the younger people who had just made it and were drunk on their success. So hanging out with like George Burns at Groucho's was really comfortable. There was no, you know, attitude thing. But then some of Aaron Fleming's younger friends were part of the new the new Hollywood, and they were the ones that I couldn't quite relate to. Mm -hmm. So Bill Melendez, I mean, for an animation buff, he worked at Disney in the 30s, into the early 40s. Then he and was one of the people that led the strike against Disney, which was big news back then. Then he worked at Warner Brothers in the 40s and 50s when all those classic Chuck Jones and Tex Avery cartoons were made and then got his own studio. And, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas in 65 was supposed to just be that one special mm -hmm. for Coca-Cola as the sponsor. It was just going to be that. And it was so popular that led to Great Pumpkin and everything afterwards. And it was all done out of these three little bungalows in Hollywood. And that's so crazy. Huh? And that's crazy because like they're they're iconic staples of, of yearly traditions, like showing Charlie Brown. Like my wife and I watch Charlie Brown Christmas every year. And like it's to, still good. It's, it's still, still great. Is. And the idea of using real kids, which there was a lot of resistance from the network because oh, they were used to like having June Foray play, you know, oh look at the little boy and I love it. It's like, no, let's have real boys and girls. And then, and I think this was uh, Lee Mendelssohn, the other part of the part 
Bill Melendez's partner. I think it was his idea to bring in Vince Guaraldi to do jazz. And, you know, we take it for granted now with the Lucy and my... All that stuff is so quintessential, the music of the Charlie Brown. That big resistance to that. It's mm. like, why would you have a, a San Francisco jazz pianist provide music for a children's Christmas show? All these things in retrospect seem ridiculous. When, when Groucho was about to make his first film, Coconuts, the producer said, you can't wear a grease paint mustache. And Groucho said, I've been wearing it for years. And they said, yeah, but that was on stage. And in a movie, you can't wear a grease and, and Groucho just said, why will they laugh any less if I paste on a fake mustache? They also had a problem with, in the Coconuts, uh, the producer insisted that the orchestra be shown on camera because he said people will want to know where the music is coming from. Mm-hmm. In a in a theater, you can see the orchestra pit, so when they're playing, you know. But in a movie, because you have to remember, Coconuts was made in '29, which was only two years after the Jazz Singer. Sound and musicals were brand new. Mm-hmm. So the producer was saying, no, no, people are going to want to, they're going to be looking behind the screen. They went on to know where the, and, and uh, one of the writers said, no, all you have, all you have to do is the, the hero says, there's something I want to tell you. And the woman says, what's that? And he says, I love you. And then sings her a song. No one's going to care. And the producer insisted. And in fact, you do see part of the orchestra dressed up in coconuts, but they're almost completely cropped out of the shot because the focus is on the, the main singers. And of course, nobody cared, but in 29, they just weren't sure. Mm-hmm. It's like, I remember reading that D.W. Griffith was a pioneer in the use of close-ups because almost everything before him was you just see the full actor walking across. And he realized you could multiply the emotional impact by just focusing on a, a trembling hand or lips or eyes. The theater owner said, people are paying their money to see all of Mary Pickford, not her hand and not her foot. We don't want to see. And he had to, f- to fight to keep close-ups in because he th- they thought, you're jipping us. We paid for the whole actor. That's, that's crazy um, to think. Imagine a, a film nowadays, just, just wide establishing shots, just the whole yeah. thing. Like... That'd be yeah, like surveillance camera. Oh, that'd be that'd be the weirdest thing. Like you know, I films are an art form that are just so complicated, and even like you take the same shot from two different directors, and it could be a totally different thing. Right. And that's. Oh, so wait, can you hang on a second? Yeah, sure. Stop it for a second. Sorry. Go. <clears throat> yeah, the things we take for granted now. It's amazing to think that these were issues. These were things that stood in the way of moving forward on a movie. They worried, what are people going to think? How are we going to explain this? And, and now it's just, you know, or, you know, going back to what I was saying about the ease with which we could see an old movie now, mm-hmm. um, you know, even with the ones that were clear, even with the ones that were in circulation and syndication, I would have to get, it's like the family would get their weekly issue of TV Guide. Oh, and I, I remember those days. Yeah, pen and thumb through it, 
And if I saw that horse feathers was on at 2.45 a.m. Saturday morning, I would somehow will myself to stay awake through all the program stuff into the netherworld of local car commercials and all that and just make myself stay awake because, oh, my God, they're showing they're, I'm finally going to get to see this. I can cross it off the list. Now, of course, it's video on demand and, you know, boxed sets with extra features of other versions and alternate takes and all this, but not not then. Even now, like with the the National Film Registry, like they they take into account, you know, the fact that film degrades over time, movies, you know, streaming services could go down at any moment. So it's nice to know that people have this greater sense of appreciation for films and for the movie production. And it, it's really nice to talk to someone who, who seems to be very passionate about it. So I got to ask before we wrap it up, what's next for you, Steve? Like what projects do you have on the pipeline that I can tell our listeners about? Well, my book Raised Eyebrows mm-hmm. was optioned and ultimately purchased and developed and is going to be a motion picture that will probably be go into production in spring or summer of 2022, which is imminent. That's crazy. It's going to be, you know, it's not a, just as with my book, not being a biography of Groucho, it's the story of, you know, this kid and his heroes, more like Ed Wood wasn't the story of Bella Lugosi's life. It was Lugosi as an old man and this enthusiastic kid. (laughs) So the three main characters in the film are Groucho Marx in old age, Aaron Fleming, this this, uh, mercurial woman, and Steve at 19 with my mutton chops and long hair and mustache. And, And so it's going to be positively surreal not just to see a film based on a book I wrote, because even, I mean, if I'd written a novel about, you know, little people living on Neptune or something, that would, it's like, wow, I came up with this story and now they're making it. But this is part of my life. I'm going to watch. That's uh, that's awesome. Very strange. Can I ask if they, they casted you yet? They have. Are you not allowed to tell me? No, I can't talk about it. He doesn't really look much like I did, but only, you know, my sisters and my cousin Jackie will care. (laughs) Steve was shorter. You know, how it doesn't really matter. You're dealing with the character. You know, the real thing isn't constantly assaulting you. So I think I was talking to someone and I said, if you put a picture of me at 19 next to this guy, they're eerily dissimilar. Hmm. But who cares? He has the chops, which is what matters more. So I'm jazzed about that. And also in March, I have another book coming out that I created out of editing my father's World War II letters to my mother that he wrote from North Africa and Italy and Germany and France. He tried to write every day and there were hundreds of letters totaling thousands of pages that I dutifully input into my iMac. Oh, wow scan them but it it, it, they're really a lot deeper than I would have given him credit for and a a lot of remarkable side trips and getting to know people and he had a he had a dog that jumped out of his arms and across the stage during a Bob Hope USO show and Bob Hope said hey you better grab him before 
Crosby throws a saddle over it. <laughs> so, so they'll, you know, so I, it's going to be an interesting year for me at least, because I'm going to have a new book and probably this movie version of raised eyebrows coming up. That's incredible. And Steve, I hope it's not too presumptuous, but we would love to have you back on the show. Uh, unfortunately, my co-host. Oh, sure, Pete. I'll never forget you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got it. No, that would be fine. Oh, I should let people know yeah. that uh, raised eyebrows is available in, in paperback and Kindle and audiobook with me doing all the readings. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and if they would like to get a signed copy, you can go to my website, stevestolier.com, S-T-O-L-I-A-R, and I'll be happy to personalize it or for whether it's for Uncle Fred's birthday or whatever. But you have to have an Uncle Fred or I won't say that. Yeah, otherwise it's going to be weird. Yeah, like who's Uncle Fred? This I well, I got it. I got the book cheaper. <laughs> for saying Uncle from, Fred. Yeah. That's awesome because I, I definitely – uh, would love to have you back on the show. My co-host sure. couldn't make it tonight, and he is probably one of the biggest Three Stooges fan you'll ever meet. He may even challenge uh, your knowledge on him. So I really want to get him in the room with you. And you're going to get an order from uh, for your book from us, too, in the next day or so. So we're looking forward to, to getting our I own copy. I alert the media. Okay, thanks. I'm going to specifically say Uncle Fred, though, now, because now it's going to be Uncle Fred. <laughs> Steve, it was an absolute honor to, to speak with you. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Have a good I rest of your night. I don't regret any of it. Oh, I love it. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Man, what, what, what a guy. Like, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I did not really know too much about Steve before when uh, we set up the interview. I just knew that he had written a book about his time with Groucho Marx, but what a guy. Holy crap. Like he has been there and he has been in it and he like Groucho Marx, that's the coolest friggin' thing ever. So I want to thank you guys uh, for tuning in and listening. And I definitely want to thank Steve. We are going to be ordering his book in the next day or so. And uh, we are super excited to maybe get him back on the show. But uh, if you guys uh, enjoyed the episode and you want to hear a little bit more about us or a little bit more of our content, you can find our website, themisfitfaction.com. There you'll find links to all of our content, including our other shows, the Multiverse Fancast and Cinematic Adventures. You can also find us on YouTube, the Misfit Faction Media Network, and you can find us on Twitter at Misfit Faction or on, I believe, Instagram at Misfit Faction. So thank you guys for listening. It was a blast. I'm Paul. Have a great rest of your day.